Good day, friends, and thank you again for joining me on the podcast. We have been looking at the interview that Jesus had with Nicodemus, who was a he was the religious slash political leader of his day, member of the Sanhedrin Council, and we've been talking about how he was having great difficulty understanding what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was presenting something to him that was brand new, a new king, a new kingdom, a new person. He called it being born from above, and Nicodemus couldn't wrap his mind around it. He, and that's where I want to kind of go with this podcast is talk about how sometimes our minds can be so stuck in a particular mindset that we miss out on so much in life. We never really get free and walk in the freedom that God wants for us because our minds are impacted by, uh, well, we've talked about different religious mindsets and other things that uh, can do it. But in any event, I wanted to start out with a story to help make the point, and uh, this is in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, and it talks about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, Jesus was away with his apostles. Lazarus was back. He lived in Bethany, which is roughly two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus tells his apostles, he gets word that Lazarus is his ill. So he doesn't go right back there. He waits a couple of days with his apostles and he tells them, guys, uh, we got to go back. And they said, why would we want to go back there, master? They've been trying to uh, kill you. They don't want anything to do with you. He said, no, we're going back for my sake, uh, my friend Lazarus. And they said, why? He said, well, Lazarus sleeping. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, what's the big deal? Now, it's interesting that every time Jesus talked about God's people in death, he never talked about them dying. He always talked about them sleeping, like he's sleeping. And they were like, couldn't understand it. So finally he told them, look, guys, Lazarus is dead and we're going back there. And they said, OK, we'll go back with you. If we got to die with you, we'll die with you. But he doesn't arrive back there till it's like four days since the time that Lazarus died. Now, the Jewish folk had a very much of a whole elaborate procedure when somebody died, how they anointed the body and how they wrapped it up in, in, in the clothing. And it took, it took a while for them to do that. And they had a thing when somebody was done three days, he was dead. So Jesus waits. And when he gets back there, uh, Martha, uh, Lazarus' sister, there was uh, Martha, Mary and Lazarus, they were very good friends of Jesus. Matter, matter of fact, the last time Jesus went into uh, Jerusalem on the Passover, he stayed at their house during the week. So he knew these people very well. Martha comes out to meet him, and immediately she says to him, you know what, if you were around, my, my brother would have never died. Great start. And Jesus said, well, if you believe, you shall see your brother rise. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. So Martha goes back and she gets Mary and Mary comes out. She says to Jesus, you know, if you were around, my brother wouldn't have died. <clears throat> it says that Jesus asked them, he said, well, show me where he's, he's laid. And so he goes to the gravesite and it says he's groaning as he's going. And y you can see not only the sadness about Lazarus, but the whole fact of Mary, Martha, or others, that they're, they're just so struggling with the, uh, with, to believe who Jesus really is, and he's, and he's telling them, I'm going to show you right now that I'm the resurrection and the life. So when he gets to the gravesite, he calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And I want you to see that he called out to him specifically. 
his name, just like he calls on you and I. Now, this this resurrection of Lazarus prefigured the resurrection of Christ. Of course it did. But when we're called to newness of life, he calls every one of us individually, just like he called out to Lazarus. And so Lazarus comes out of the grave. He says he's bound hand and foot with the grave clothes that I just talked about. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Now, what does Jesus say? He says, loose him and let him go. You see, even though Lazarus was living and raised from the dead, if he don't get those grave clothes off, he's never going to walk in the freedom that Jesus is calling him to. And if he doesn't get that napkin that's wrapped around his mind, if he doesn't get that deadness of that grave clothes off of him, he's never going to walk in freedom. And I'm suggesting that's what can happen to you and I. And it's interesting because when Jesus died and they went to his grave, when they found his grave, what did they find folded up? His grave clothes. He folded them up and making a statement, death will never hold me and death will never hold anyone that's one with me. But now this business of getting set free from grave clothes. Okay, what happens with with our mindsets that this napkin can be wrapped around us? It can be man-made religious doctrines. Because see, we're transformed, it says, by the renewing of our mind. We have to have a mind that lines up with the spirit of truth that's in us. Jesus has placed that spirit of truth in our hearts. And it's, you know, it's so funny because we say the distance between the head and the heart, it's not that great. But what a lifelong journey we make as Christians to bridge that gap, to get our heads to line up with our hearts. And I'm not saying we're not redeemed through our minds. It's, it's, it's his work in our heart. But we will never be free until our thinking lines up with his thinking. A revelation of his truth who he is in us, who we are in him, truth of his kingdom, truth of his character, so impacting our thinking that it begins to impact our living. There's a scripture that says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he lives. The heart there doesn't mean just a physical organ, it means his whole being. We have to see life from a whole new perspective our new life in Christ, to know and view Jesus and his kingdom as God wants us to. And so we need Jesus by his spirit to renew our minds after we're redeemed. Shake off the grave clothes so that we can walk freely. Now the enemy's only access to us as redeemed people is try to influence our thinking. He cannot get at our hearts. Our hearts are sealed off from him by the spirit of Jesus. We always say Jesus has our back. True enough. But think of it this way. He has a hedge around your heart that the enemy can't penetrate. He may try to play with your mind, but he will never penetrate your heart. Your heart belongs to Jesus. And guess what? He's an incredibly jealous lover. And I say jealous, not controlling. You know, people think of jealousy like in, in love sometimes, like it's a bad, oh, you're a jealous person. Folks, anybody in love is a jealous person. And Jesus is a jealous lover over you, and he will never let the enemy get at your heart. So how do you recognize then if the enemy's playing around with your head? 
Anything that instills in you fear, shame, always feeling condemned, constant negativity, anything that causes you to judge others, compare yourself to others, be envious of others, always blaming others, when there's ongoing anger that is hurting you in every relationship you have, anything that uh, instills some self-righteous, ego-driven lifestyle, all that garbage represents the grave clothes of the enemy that he wants to drape over your mind. Why? So you'll be a Christian who doesn't live free and is pretty well powerless in life. Now we can say, well, all of us have some of that in our head and that's, that's true enough. And that's why I mentioned this is a lifelong journey. Every day we need Jesus. We need our minds renewed constantly. Your salvation is a one-shot deal. You're saved once, but the renewing of your mind, it's ongoing, but it needs to be ongoing. And we, in fact, can recognize this nonsense that comes from the enemy, and we can, in fact, reject it, reject him, because guess what? In Christ, we are the ones with the power over him. All he can do is try to influence us so we don't influence others, and we do not have to let it happen. Furthermore, life's tough enough. The joy of the Lord needs to be the strength that we have in our hearts and in our minds. It's what makes life worthwhile. We cannot let the enemy sap us of the joy and strength that God wants us to have. Mention fear. John the Apostle says, God's not given to us a spirit of fear. He's given us a power, love, sound mind. Over and over, Jesus told the Apostles, fear not. Why? Because he knew the tendency of our natural man. He knew how the enemy would constantly try to bring us into fear. You know, I, I read an acronym for fear recently that I thought was pretty good. Obviously, spirit, fear is spelt F-E-A-R. The F for fake. I mean, the F for false, the E for expectations, the A for appearing, and the R for real. So what's that saying? Fear is false expectations appearing real. Through fear, the enemy has a way of making what is false and phony appear to be real or truthful when, in fact, it's a lie. I mentioned that scripture, power, love, and a sound mind. A sound mind is a stable mind. It's a mind that can uh, perceive, a discerning mind. It knows how to discern the truth and reject the lies. It's a mind free of fear and free of a negative outlook. And when our mind is free from fear, it's like a chain reaction. All that other nonsense that I just mentioned, it all starts to go when the fear and the shame that's in our mind is replaced by the truth of who Jesus is and who we are in him. You know, sometimes people, we act like we're forced to be a slave to some of the things that the enemy wants to put in our head, even the things that we think about ourselves. Are we really ever going to let the enemy define who we are? He doesn't have one good thing to say about you or me. He always deals in negativity. I, I think of the time with uh, Jesus with Peter when it's towards the end of Jesus' ministry and he's started for the first time to talk to them about the necessity for him to go to the cross. And Peter immediately tells him, no, he's going to argue with him. No, you're not. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Now, he's not calling Peter Satan. He's saying, I am recognizing where that thought is coming from, and I'm not going to even entertain it. I'm not going to let it germinate in my mind. I'm going to reject it before it gets any foothold. And the longer we walk with Jesus daily in love, the more we can do the same thing. Now, people say, well, the fear, fear of the Lord, you got to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. Fear there means honor, reverence, respect. Doesn't mean being afraid of them. How can you be in a love relationship with someone that you're scared stiff of? You might have legitimate feelings for them, but the love relationship will never grow or be healthy if you're afraid of the person. I mentioned earlier, like fear and condemnation. There is a difference between condemnation of the devil and conviction of the Holy Spirit. The enemy will always and only condemn you, and God will never condemn you. He convicts you. What's the difference? Condemnation instills fear and a feeling that God has rejected you, and rejection is another one of those things the enemy wants to throw at us. The enemy's condemnation pulls you away from God. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, he's drawing you to God. He's bringing you to the realization, I just hurt the one I love. And what am I going to do? I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to confess it. And then I'm going to go on in the love relationship. And I don't ever take his mercy for granted. I don't. And I've had to call upon it plenty of time. I've had... All of us have had times in relationships. I've had to ask Kathy to forgive me a time or two when I screw up and hurt her. And I can't, you know how when that happens and then she might go in the other room or she might take off somewhere, that feeling of separation. It's like hell when you feel that, that I can't stand that feeling. And so what do you do? You acknowledge and you find the best way you can to say, I'm sorry. And thankfully, over 15 years, she's been pretty gracious. And the other thing, she's been pretty darn good about never throwing it back up in my face later. And folks, how much more so with Jesus? The other things I mentioned, uh, fear, condemnation, judging and comparing and jealousy and blame and all that stuff, that all flows from the enemy's attempt to instill in your mind shame. I don't measure up to others. Therefore, what's going to happen when I don't feel I'm measuring up to others? Then I'm going to bring everybody down to whatever level I think is necessary to temporarily relieve my shame. What a miserable, negative, defeating way to live. Which, again, is exactly what the enemy wants. The fact is, none of us measure up. We're all redeemed sinners. That's who we are. And because we couldn't measure up, Jesus had to come in and redeem us. And we all have to humble ourselves before God and admit our flaws. And then we can freely receive and give out his love and freely receive and give out his forgiveness. And then we don't have to let the enemy or anyone else have the power over us to fill our heads and lives with shame. And insofar as renewing the mind, I think it's important to note that following Jesus is not some self-help, self-discipline, positive thinking training of your mind. There's a difference between man training his mind and Jesus renewing your mind. 
Jesus renews your mind by his spirit in you. And daily as we walk with him and we commune back and forth with him, we get greater revelation of him, his love, his truth, his kingdom. And that's constantly renewing our mind. There's a, and, and as far as man renewing his mind, there's a whole industry that's built around that, developing positive mindsets. And I'm not saying it doesn't work. It can definitely help people. Uh, you can program your mind to certain ways. Uh, the government's been involved with that for years. They, they, they do that, and there's nothing wrong with positive thinking. But in fact, every Christian that follows Jesus should normally and naturally develop a positive mindset. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. When you are one with him, walking with him, we begin to think like him, live like him, love like him, not because we're taking a course in how to do it. It's an outflow of his personality so impacting us that little by little we're becoming Jesus to those around us. But training the mind, that's big business. And in the secular world, there are people that do it, and I understand that they do help some people. But I'm not talking about the natural man here, if I can use that term. I'm talking about the redeemed child of the one true God. We are in a one-on-one, -on -one personal, intimate relationship with the greatest, most powerful, motivational speaker who knows more about you and me than we know about you and me and cares more about us than we care about us. If anyone is going to renew our mind in exactly the way it needs to be, it's him. And guess what? He does it for the bubble. He, he works in that thing, freely receive, freely give. And in speaking of, you know, self-help and motivational speakers and books, Obviously, that's a big thing in the secular world, but have you noticed that even in the Christian world, if you go into Christian bookstores and you read it, it's all about, it's all built around the natural life. More so, I guess is what I'm saying, than the spiritual life. It's more about the kingdom of this world than it is the kingdom of God. We're going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise by the world's standards. Your best life now, you will be successful and prosper by the world's standards. Apostle John wrote, I wish you would all prosper even as your soul prospers. Soul prosperity. When I talk about this, I always think of Solomon because he was the wealthiest, wisest, most successful man that probably ever lived. How did it work out for him? Now, God had blessed him and he told him that he would bless him. What did he wind up doing? He violated everything that God told the people what a king should be. God told him this is the way a king should be. This is what a king shouldn't do. In his healthy, wealthy and wise state, he wound up leading the people into idolatry. And under Solomon, the physical nation, its size and its prominence, it was greater than it ever would be. It all started out great. And again, he led the people in an idolatry and away from God. How did that happen? Well, God told them, I do not want you marrying foreign women. Now, not that he had prejudice against them, but he knew if you intermarry 
with all these other women from other nations, they're going to bring their pagan gods right into your nation. And what did Solomon do? Well, he had, I think, 800 wives and then, I don't know, a thousand or so concubines. Don't ask me how he got the time, but in any event. And what did he do? He built altars for his wives so that they could burn incense right in Israel, burn incense to their phony gods. By the way, when I was doing this, I'm thinking in America, have we learned anything? God told the king, don't multiply horses to yourself. So what did Solomon do? Well, he went out and got 14,000 chariots and 12,000 cavalrymen. He started the industrial military complex before we ever heard of it. What did he do? He married Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Hittites. He married the whole Light family in a direct disobedience of what God had said. He built altars to Ashtoreth, Milcom, and uh, the depraved god of the Moabites, Chemish, and Molech, the Ammonite god. And when you look at what involved these gods, Ashtoreth was a Canaanite queen of heaven, the goddess of war and sex. Uh, sexual rituals were involved, temple prostitutes. And Moloch, uh, sexual rituals there too, but child sacrifice, offering up of children, children being killed in the fire to be offered up to, to the pagan god. And th through the centuries, these particular pagan gods I'm talking about, their names changed when it became, you know, Egyptians, Greeks, Romans. They just changed the names to where you get Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, all, all this other stuff. And what comes out of them in the practice of these pagan gods? Rape, child abduction, uh, rituals with children. We, we call it all. We're talking about Greek mythology. Do you realize that those things were real pagan gods that they worshipped? And do you realize that where they've gotten today... I'm talking about Solomon, what, 3,000 years ago? And look what we've done today. Here's what God told Solomon. Jehovah was very angry with Solomon about this, for now Solomon was no longer interested in the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice to warn him specifically against worshiping other gods. But he didn't listen. So now the Lord said to him, since you've not kept our agreement and have not obeyed my laws, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and your family, and I'm going to give it to However, for the sake of your father David, I won't do this while you are still alive. I'll take the kingdom away from your son. And I'll let him be king for one tribe for David's sake, for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. Here we are looking to create Solomons today, and God's looking for Davids, shepherd kings, who don't, they're not the wisest, richest, but they have a heart of a shepherd. And all the time under Solomon, now there's good people there, just like there's good people in America today. Good Christian people, but and and they're believing the people at Solomon's time. But this is our, this is God's nation. 
I mean, judgment's not going to come on us. We're God's nation. We're the greatest nation on earth. Does it concern us that absolutely everything I just said applies to us in America today? God judged them for it. For some reason, we believe we're immune from judgment. And again, I'll say it. There are good Christian people here. God will always have his remnant. And God will always warn his remnant of the coming judgment to prepare them and keep them. But guess what? God's remnant don't stop the judgment when it's God's time. Before Jesus left the earth, he... he pronounced judgment against the nation. The last time he went into Jerusalem, he pronounced judgment against Jerusalem. That's where the leadership was, the leadership that rejected him. They had turned that whole Jerusalem of the temple, the priesthood, everything that was meant by God to be a blessing to the people into a corrupt system that benefited only a handful of them and harmed the everyday people. Does that sound familiar? And so he pronounced judgment. But he specifically told his apostles and his remnant what to expect, what would be the signs of impeding judgment, and, and he told them when to escape, how to recognize when it was getting close. But he did tell them, you know, this generation won't pass away. In Matthew 24, he details, and he told them what to expect. And one of the things he mentioned was deception. And of course, I'm talking about the renewing of the mind here, that how our minds, when they're not renewed by him, were so susceptible to other things. And Jesus said that the deception could get so great that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. That there would be those that would come using his name, false prophets, who would lead the people astray because the people didn't discern what was going on. Deception, he mentions, oh God, he mentions that like three or four times. He said there'd be constant wars and rumors of wars, but he says kingdom and king, kingdom nation against nation. When he's talking nation against nation, he's talking about people against people. He's talking about a situation of unrest, division, chaos taking place all over. And of course, I'm saying this, and I know you're, you're seeing that this is even going on. Now, granted, this has been going on through the ages, but the closer one gets to judgment for them, it intensified, and the closer every kingdom and empire gets to judgment, the more it intensifies. He said there would be famines, earthquake, pestilence. And that, believe me, they had it back then. They... they they had a famine that was so bad that, I mean, the people were looking, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that, how he had to bring relief to the people in Jerusalem for how they were suffering from the famines. And they had pandemics, folk. We think this pandemic we're going through now, this isn't a new thing. Rome had a pandemic uh, that that there's several reasons why uh, Rome fell. Military unrest, there was too much, uh, the military got so extended they couldn't handle it. Uh, slave labor, they couldn't keep up with it. Excessive spending and taxation, sound familiar? And then they did a whole bread and circus thing to hide it. In other words, fill the people with entertainment so they don't see what's really going on. But one of the other chief reasons for Rome falling was the pandemic. It, it killed so many of them. Uh, it's not a lot of historians that, that talk about that, but it was... 
it was a contributing factor. And so we see the same things, famines and earthquakes. I, I think I mentioned this before. When Jesus died, there was a, uh, a period of darkness, an eclipse that took place. And, and so much so that even the pagan uh, Romans were writing, uh, sending messages like, what's going on over there? Because our pagan gods are telling us something's wrong, something's off. And before God has judged, a lot of times through history, we have these these uh, eclipses that take place. It happened uh, prior to World War One, right over the whole Ottoman Empire, which obviously got destroyed. And we had one over our country, like what, a few years ago? And what did we do? We cheered and clapped and had cheerleaders in football stadiums. And, and what have we had since then? What's taken? But we've had fires, floods. And I know we've had these things before in history, but I'm talking about all at once and intensifying. And But I guess what happens is we don't see it. We we choose to believe, well, it's these things have always gone on, and that's exactly what it's that they would, yeah, these things have always happened. And lo and behold, judgment comes. And Jesus said, all those things I just spoke of so far, Jesus said, those are the only beginning. He said, you'll know the real judge, the real, the end of this is coming. He said, when they begin to persecute you. And, and he said, you'll see people betraying one another in the love of many growing cold. You'll see people pitted against people, betraying each other. And persecution will come even against my people. Why? Because over time, they'll be perceived to be the problem. Now, I don't know how many years that's going to take, folks, but we're seeing the seeds of that right now. A turning away from what's godly and Christian people being viewed as somebody that's holding things back. We're not inclusive enough. We're not, we're not, well, we're not a lot of things in their eyes, I guess. And he said it will go so bad that false prophets will lead people astray and they will support the very thing they shouldn't. And then the last thing he said is when you see the abomination of that Daniel spoke about sitting in the holy place. Now, he's referring back to Daniel. In Daniel's time, it was this uh, Greek. Uh, I'm not going to remember his name right now. But he went right into the temple and, and offered a pig as an offering Antiochus Epiphanes, that's who it was. So Jesus is saying, when you see a similar thing like that, now did that happen in, in, in their lifetime, the apostles early on? Yes, it did. The Romans were going to, Caliglia was going to come right in and put a statue inside the temple, but uh, Caliglia wound up being ruled insane and they assassinated him. At one time they had like, I don't know, four kings in a row assassinated. Agrippina assassinated this guy Claudius so she could put her son Nero in. And what did Nero do? Had his mother assassinated. Real close-knit family. But he was telling them, look, when you see the Roman armies with their ensign and they're marching towards, he said, get out of town. And they did. Many of the Jews did leave. They took heed to the, to the warnings of Jesus that judgment was coming and they got out of town. But there were those that didn't and they began to fight among themselves, argue. They sequestered themselves inside the temple. They, they, and they, it got so horrible, they, 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 they just didn't believe it could happen to them. And the Romans slaughtered over, God, over a million of them. And of course, burnt the temple down and destroyed that.
But God warned them. But the judgment still came. And when I'm talking like this, I'm not just trying to be some doomsday prophet. And I'm not even talking about the end of America. I'm talking about the end of America as we know it. That America, little by little, where we're headed because of what we've done, these same things I mentioned that Solomon did, little by little by little, we're going to be just become another player in the game. See, the, the whole nation of Israel never got destroyed. They just were never the same again. And in our case, what we're going to be is just another player under the umbrella of international government. See, when we go, that gives way to another empire coming up. And sooner or later, one day, it's going to be the final one. I don't know the day or the time. I'm not supposed to. But this stuff has has been going on right under our noses. And it's accelerating now. We see it accelerating, especially under this pandemic. You know, the elitists always say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Well, they're certainly not. They have their 10-year plan called the Great Reset that they started in 2020 uh, through the World Economic Forum. This guy, Klaus Schwab, he's the head of that. He brought in years ago, he brought in all these 400-plus executives from around the world so they could talk about how they could impact world government, all corporate people. They talk about the fourth industrial revolution. And with the pandemic, what they use that as is it's a start for doing it under the guise of helping people with infectious disease and climate change. Now, doesn't that sound good? They're going to solve our problems with infectious diseases and climate change. And, you know, years ago, they used to call this stuff the Illuminati and people said, well, it's not the Illuminati anymore. No, it's not. They've morphed into a whole different bunch of organizations. And I think I've mentioned them before, but bear with me. I'll, the World Economic Forum, the World Trade Organization, uh, the World Health Organization, the World Economic Development and Cooperation. Love that one. And then they've got their latest one, the Council of Inclusive Capitalism, which the uh Pope just signed off on that, became a part of that. And when they say inclusive capitalism, they're talking about the elite's version of capitalism, which means all middle America money is gone. They've got the World Economic Forum, the G7, the G20, the Council of Foreign Relations, the Club of Rome, Bilderbergers. Do you know that in the last, they're talking about capitalism, version of capitalism in America in the last, I think it's 45 years, $50 trillion of money has been taken from the 90% and went up to the 1%. That's called inclusive capitalism. Do you remember under Ronald Reagan, we had trickle-down economics? Well, in a defiance of gravity, the money never trickled down. It got sucked up. When they get done with the climate control and, and disease infectious diseases, then what do they hit next? Government, finance, and social life. A new, a new order, a new way of living. International digital currency, you're hearing about that more and more. The dollar's no longer going to be the king. The yuan, I think I'm saying that right, Y-U-A-N, that's the Chinese currency. They are putting it out there now in international trade. It's becoming more and more prominent. And folks, that's when it really impacts America. America gets away with what we get away with economically because the dollar's king. If the dollar's not king anymore, then every one of us, our assets are all threatened. And believe me, when America's assets are threatened, they will follow anyone and anything that finds them a way out to protect it. And they'll rationalize it because false prophets will tell them do it. 
Okay. This is cheery, huh? Okay, well, well, let's send down a cheery, you know. What do we do? Well, Jesus said that when you see all these things, what did he say to do? Well, he said, look up and rejoice because you're closer to the fulfillment, the fullness of your redemption. It's near, he said, it's closer. This is what you've been waiting for. Now, all of these things I mentioned, they think they're doing it. God's allowing all this. They are fulfilling the predeterminate plan of the ages that God has. And you know what ultimately that plan involves? Our ruling and reigning with Jesus one day. We do not lose, we win. And it's legitimate to say, well, what about my, you know, I'm 70, in my 70s, but what about my children and my grandchildren? And that's a legitimate concern. But I think God loves them more than I could ever, you could ever. And watch what he's going to do with our young people. He is right now around the globe. He's gathering, gathering, gathering. He's sovereignly moving upon hearts. They're beginning to look up. They're beginning to question. He's revealing himself. He will draw them. He will move through them. He will not let the enemy have them. God knows how to prepare us. He knows how to keep us. And when persecution came through the ages, oh, the church just grew. That which the enemy can't hurt us. If persecution comes, it will purify us, protect us, provide us. It will be the thing that keeps us. And he will fill us with such power, so much of his presence and his spirit. We won't be afraid of what we're losing. We'll be excited about what we're gaining. He'll put families back together with love and unity that they never knew before. I'm going to close with this because I always remember the words of Joseph. <clears throat> Joseph was uh, Jacob's son. And he had a bunch of brothers. Joseph was a little cocky. He did a little bit of bragging. And his brothers got, I was talking about jealousy before, his brothers got very jealous and envious over him. What did they do? They brought him out to a ditch and left him in a ditch to die. I mean, I, I, sure, the kid might have been a little cocky and arrogant, but Tune him up. Don't throw him in a ditch to die. So what happens? He goes into the ditch. He's raised up out of the ditch to be taken to Egypt as a slave. And then what happens? He gets charged with a crime that he never committed, rape, and he gets thrown in prison. When he gets to prison, he meets a guy that he helps out considerably, and that guy winds up betraying him. Absolutely nothing good happened. But what happened? God brought him up, brought him out. God raised him up to incredible heights that Joseph couldn't even imagine. And those very brothers that were the cause of him going to prison, he becomes their deliverer. And they weep together. They cry together. They rejoice together. And Joseph says, guys, that which the enemy meant for evil, our God has turned it into good. He did it then. He'll do it again. We don't have to fear. Rejoice. Thanks, folks.